this may not be the best acquisition ever, but I'll be damned if it isn't up there. Yeah. Right. Like I think that he bought this. I don't know the I don't know the exact number, but he bought the majority of OnlyFans for I think single digit millions of dollars, maybe low double digits, possibly low double digits. But let's even say it was ten million dollars. This is now a more than ten billion dollar company. Yeah. I feel like I could rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. I want to start the episode with a survey for the listener. Uh, and we'll okay. actually let John and um, Ben chime in. So just, Ben, turn your camera on so I can see your face. All right, so we're going to start with the survey. So on Monday morning at 7.30 a.m., I wake up from a text from Sean. And here's what the text says. It goes, <laughs> hey, you got good topics for tomorrow? I just texted Emmett from Twitch to do a pod, and he said he'll do it tomorrow. So I'm going to drive to San Francisco tomorrow and record an interview with him. And so what I want, Jonathan and Ben, turn your cameras on. (laughs) What I want you to do a thumbs up if you think that it's the first one, a thumbs down if you think it's the second one. Do you think that this text means, okay, in lieu of Sam and Sean recording together, I'm going to do one with Emmett? Or do you think that this means... In addition to the recording tomorrow, I'm also going to do one with (laughs) Sam and Sean. Thumbs up for the first one, thumbs down for the second one. All right, great. I just wanted to make sure I'm not crazy. And I want to know. Oh, Ben, the betrayal. (laughs) Oh, E2, Ben, E2. So I thought that that's what it meant. And when I heard that, I was like, all right, so I have some free time between 11 and noon. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, (laughs) let me just say this. Would I say, do you have good topics for the pod tomorrow if we weren't going to do a pod with good topics together? I don't know. Seems like that might be something that, uh, you know, that we're going to do. All right. Well, I just want to see what the audience thinks. So whatever. Um, I have a bunch of topics today. What do you have? I got, bro, you think you got a bunch of topics? I got, well, however many topics you have, add one. That's how many topics I got. Well, I see a big list. You, you have like an interesting... You have a few interesting things. What you 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 want to kick us off with something? Let's start with this. Yeah. So, um we've talked a lot about one business on this podcast, probably more than any other podcast has talked about this business. I would say we are the champions of of this company. We are the ones out here letting people know that this company is legit, that this company is big, that this company is very interesting. Everybody's overlooking it. We've been saying it for years. Are you even a paying customer of this company? I'm not a paying customer because I'm a married man, but well, you can be a married man and be a customer. But like, I've never paid. I'm for not it. a paying customer because free porn exists, <laughs> and I'm talking about OnlyFans. <laughs> the uh, so OnlyFans is annual numbers leaked, and um, not leaked actually. What, what happened was actually kind of interesting. You know this, but maybe a lot of people who are listening don't. Which is that any company th- uh, that is based in the UK, has to, whether it's private or public, has to report at the end of the year a sort of a financial summary. And the more the bigger your company is, the more data you have to include. Basically, like a, like a public company, you have to report like. Like a public company. So in the US, if it's public, you can go look up their information, maybe the quarterly, quarterly earnings, or you can go find their S1. But if it's a private company, you're just shit out of luck. You're just guessing. But if you go to OnlyFans.com and you scroll down to the privacy policy, you click privacy policy, you will see that OnlyFans is run by a company called Phoenix International Limited. And what is Phoenix International Limited? It is a company based in the UK. So if you go to the, uh, there's an entity called Companies House. And Companies House is where uh, all of the company information is housed. And so if you go there, you can find, uh, you can look up Phoenix International Limited. And then you can look at filing history and you can see that there are several reports. So reports about uh, this director replacing this director. But the one you want to care, the one you care about is the one that basically says, here is um, the 2022 financial summary, year end financial summary. And when you go to that, you're going to see the following picture of a business. OnlyFans is a business that generated or or collected 5.6 billion in revenue in 2022. Its take on that it was twenty percent. So their their company took one point one billion. So for every four dollars a creator makes, they make one dollar. Um, on that one point one billion in net revenue, five hundred and twenty five million of profit. So this company's spitting off half a billion a year of profit. Pay a little tax. The after tax profit is still four hundred million dollars. 
And then the beauty of it is if you scroll down to uh, to the, I don't know, the balance sheet, uh, somewhere down right out right after the PL, it says dividends. And it shows that the owner, Leo, took $338 million in dividends last year. Oh, my God. And the year before that, he took like 200-something million. This guy has taken out $550 million of dividends in the last two years off this business, which is just incredible because let, my, let me remind you, this is a company that he bought in 2018 this is five years what did he so uh five years what did he, he bought it for, do you know what he paid for non-public information but he bought 75 percent of the business at the time for what i believe was low millions of dollars was he wealthy uh, before that yes so leo is a um kind of a gangster of the internet and he by the way if you just go to his website his website's awesome so there's really two things I and love he's about a, his website. He's a listener, I think. Well, that's one of the things I love about the website. If you go to his website, which is just his name, Leo Leo Radvinsky.com. Um, if you go to things I like, so he's got a things I like, and then the very first category, podcasts, the very first one of two podcasts is my first million. So he's a listener of the pod, which is you know, just a cool thing, fun, fun thing to see. Hey, quick break to talk about our sponsor today. We're talking about HubSpot and their new AI-powered service hub. Okay, so what is service hub? Basically, every customer today wants to be talked to in a personalized way. And before, that required tons of human agents. But now, with AI, you could do that in a personalized way with fewer humans involved. And so you don't have to scale up your team in order to deliver personalized chat and service. So check out HubSpot's new service hub to use their AI tools to give better support to your customers. That's what they want and that's what they deserve. So visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn how this all new solution can help you deliver customer service with AI to your customers. But I love his website because I love when people sort of put up their flag and they're like, yo, this is what I'm all about. And it just they just make it really easy for you to just understand Here's who I am. Here's what I do. Here's what I'm into. And if I'm into this, if you're into those same sort of things, we'll probably get along. So his uh, his main thing says he's a software company, architect, angel investor, and open source software supporter. <laughs> this guy gives millions of dollars a year to open source projects that probably would have died had he not done that. Um, he is, he's a huge supporter of, of open source software and sort of like a, uh, uh, he's like, you know, like a sort of uh, freedom entrepreneur right he, he wants projects that are increasing the overall amount of freedom in the universe so whether it's uh he'll fund these open source social networks that are like um like a mastodon type of type of social network that are are not owned and controlled by like mark zuckerberg or elon musk like one private company closed source owned by a, a mega billionaire he's funds projects that are alternatives to those and listen to this he also if you go to his so you see like he has sections about me projects open source things i like if you click projects only fans isn't even number one of the listed projects it's number two number and, and he just it just says like one paragraph and it says what it is but number one is some open source project that's what he has listed yeah before x he's like uh before x is like tools for rapid prototyping and development you know microsoft discontinued visual basics and before X stepped in to try to make this happen, probably would have died. You know, basically, like I, when I looked into this, it probably would have died. And then in 2019, he decided to um, put a ton of money into it just so that this project could stay alive. And um, so then, like under giving, he's like, "Yeah, I don't. I donated a bunch of my time, effort, and money to causes I care about, um, including open source initiatives and traditional charities. My goal one day is to sign the Giving Pledge. To sign the Giving Pledge, you need a billion dollar net worth." I'm pretty sure he has like a multi-billion dollar net worth now. I think he's achieved this goal because in the five years, and you can go look at the company filings, but like 2019, 2018, the company has like, he pulls out like 1.5 million in dividends. And so in like a three-year period, he went from pulling out 1.5 million in dividends to 250 and then 340 million dollars in dividends out of this company. So this accelerated extremely quickly. And it, I think like, you know, there's all these great tech acquisitions. There's like, uh, you know, Google buying YouTube for a billion dollars, probably worth 50 billion now. Facebook buying Instagram for a billion dollars, probably worth 100 billion now. This may not be the best acquisition ever, but I'll be damned if it isn't up there. Yeah. Right. Like, I think that he bought this. I don't know the I don't know the exact number, but he bought the majority of OnlyFans for, I think, single digit millions of dollars, maybe low double digits, possibly low double digits. But let's even say it was $10 million. This is now a more than $10 billion company. So he turned 
let's just pretend it was $10 million into essentially $10 billion of value. It, Personally, not a fund, not a company. This is him. This is one guy. Who owns the other 25%? And is there a story of him buying this and like what he saw? Because like, I would have, if, 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 if this was me five years ago, I would have been like, dude, this would never, this will never work. Right? I mean, everyone would have said that. So it was already kind of, it was already working on a very small scale. So this guy, Guy Stokely, was the founder. Uh, and if you go look at Guy Stokely, he looks like an Instagram model. Um, he is like a, uh, like every picture of him, he's flanked by seven women. And uh, the story is the, that Guy Stokely, his dad's in the finance world. He takes a small loan of like 10,000 pounds from his dad, starts OnlyFans, and um, they kind of co-own the business or whatever. So it's like a father and son was like sort of the origin of this <laughs> thing. Good bonding. Yeah, yeah. Some guys like golf. Some guys like fishing. Some some fathers and sons start only fans. Yeah. It's like right, like that's that's amazing. And um, I don't know why he sold or when he sold, but um, uh, yeah, uh, Leo approaches them and they buy and he buys the business. He, at the time, it was reported that he bought seventy five percent of the business. I don't know if later he bought the rest. I suspect he did because there's one of these filings that Guy Stokely is removed as a director in the company. So uh, maybe he just voluntarily stepped down. I don't know. You're just, you know, at some point, you're just reading a bunch into these statements. You can't say for sure exactly how it happened. And this whole thing was very secretive. In fact, when I first found out about Leo owning OnlyFans, at the time, nobody knew who owned OnlyFans. It was not clear. There's nothing on the internet. Um, this was several years ago. And I was trying to figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. And then I get a message from somebody who's, who's like, hey, I know the guy who owns OnlyFans, and he loves the pot. I was like, whoa, that's cool. Like. I've been trying to find who owns this thing. I wanted to invest in this. And um, anyways, that's how we kind of like, we ended up having a chat. Uh, You know, I want to meet this guy someday. He's got a really interesting story. So now there's like a photo of him on the internet and and there's, he's a very private guy, but now a little more information has come out about him. Very early on, I think when he was a teenager, like 15, 16 years old, he got into the business of first, I think like domaining. So he would basically buy and sell like hundreds of domains, like maybe thousands of domains. In fact, there's like a, some, he got sued at some point. Some, there's like a court filing of like, here's a thousand domains that this guy still owns. <laughs> and it's just like every variation of uh, like, you know, sort of like websites that you can imagine, many of which were sort of in the adult category. And then he creates My Free Cams. And My Free Cams basically took over the cam girl market. And, um, I think that site still makes great, you know, that's how he, I think he got very, very rich was off that site. Um, and he used that money then to invest and to parlay that into other, other businesses, but he, he owns a portfolio of these businesses. And now Phoenix international, which is only fans has become a major, major one. This is amazing in a lot of different ways. One, it's amazing that companies house, which always a weird name. I hate saying that it's companies, plural companies house. It's amazing that that exists, and it's one of my favorite places to do research. Um, it's amazing how fast this grew. Would you, would you invest in this company, or do you not do like? Yeah, I tried to several times. You know, the problem was they didn't need any investment; they were making so much money. <laughs> and so I was like, uh, "Hey, um, I can add value." And I was like, uh, "I don't even, you know, am I really? You're crushing it. What are you? What am I going to do here? Right? Like, <laughs> hey, I'm a fan." I think I'm a good hang. Can I invest? That's really ultimately right. what my pitch was. It's like, I'm a fan of what you're doing. Um, unlike most people, I don't just like, you know, at the time when I was saying this stuff, like, only guys had a, it's over time become more and more mainstream, over time become more and more accepted as a thing that's legitimate. At the time, it was seen as very, um, very sketchy. It was sort of the butt of the joke. And um, yeah, so I definitely would have invested in this. Um, I wanted to they were doing so well that I don't think they ultimately needed to, needed any investment. Now, the one thing they do need is liquidity. Uh, like, you know, he's taking massive dividends, which is great. But like, you know, they could realize a several billion dollar liquidity event if they could go public or if they could sell, but there's no buyer and it's hard to go public with a business like this. And so I think, you know, I don't know what they're going to do with it, but uh, you know, it's not a bad plan B to just suck out hundreds of millions in dividends every year. It's fine. Yeah, I was going to say, is that what he wants? I don't know why you'd ever want to go public. with. The- I don't know if he wants that, but you always want the option, right? Like any business person would want the option, whether you take it or not, is secondary. In fact, 
most of the things in my life I'm pushing for and people are like, do you want this? And I'm like, oh, I haven't even gotten there yet. All I want is the option. And if I have the option, then I can think, what, what I definitely know is I don't not want the option, right? And I think that's just a better way to operate as a business person is to, uh, to make sure you have the options on the table for you. At $400 million a year in a dividend, there's probably only five or 10, I would imagine, people getting, have, who have, in the world, or at least in America, who have, who have higher income. Like I remember Steve Schwartzman from Blackstone one year made a billion dollars. And then the other guy is like, what's the guy's name? Is, is it Griffith or Griffin? The uh, like, it's usually just like, Ken Griffin. It's usually like the top five or 10 hedge fund managers who make this. And they're actually, if they're the best, they're, it's fairly reliable. But they're like, the, they're, those are the guys who are buying the $100 million apartments in New York, you know, like the Bill Ackman's. And there's probably only 10 of them, maybe 20. Right. But like that income, you'd be the highest in America in the top. 30 or something like that you know what i mean so like i don't really i don't know man i would probably still own that um well this is cool well i i one thing that's cool about this guy by the way when i talked to him um like you know 80 90 percent of our conversation was not about only fans at all it was about these different open source projects he's interested in he was just he's very like he's a technical guy he's very curious very interested so he was showing me like oh by, by the way check this out i'm gonna send you this link you know like try this uh try this site out it's kind of like it's like this fringe niche site, open source project. But like, I think it's really cool for these reasons. And um, I just love that. I love, you know, one of the things I love the most about tech is that it redistributed wealth to a bunch of people who had different interests. So like when the wealthiest people were all from finance, you just got this like one homogenous pool of, of rich people. It's like, Here's a bunch of rich dudes that live in the same place, like alpha, that like the same stuff. White guys wearing yeah. suits. Alpha New York, um, you know, power suit, watch wearing, art buying, greed like, is good type money. of guys. Yeah. And then like crypto made a whole bunch of other people rich, right? Because it was like you know a different type of person got rich through that, and they had different interests. And they're like, yo, I'm going to spend money on this digital squiggle and this bored ape, and I'm going to donate to this other thing, and I'm going to fund these types of projects and these types of this type of worldview. I'm going to fund. And, you know, tech companies were started by, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg. And, you know, this guy didn't, he wouldn't want to start a hedge fund. He wanted to do something else. And because he does that, now he could spend his money doing other things. Or Elon Musk, he's like, I'm going to fund companies that will do space travel when no investor would fund this. I'll fund it myself. And so I love when wealth gets distributed to new pockets of people who have different interests, different values, because they're going to bring some new, like, it's not the thing they created. It's actually all the stuff they do with their money that creates a hundred new new things. That's kind of interesting to me. I've uh, I've emailed back and forth with them just a few times. I've asked him to come on. Um, I think you have too. I don't know if that will ever happen. Yeah, he's like oh, I'm a pretty private person. I don't think he's like I don't think I would make a, a very good guest. But, um, you know, well, okay, fine. We'll talk about your dividends then, sir. <laughs> <laughs> You either come on as a guest or we find you on company's house. That's the rules of this podcast. Dude, let me tell you about another person that is hard to find information on and is really fascinating, but really evil. Have you ever heard of the Sackler family? I saw that there's a documentary or a movie out on Netflix about them or a show, but I don't know anything about them. So I'm in the perfect spot. I'm interested and aware, but completely ignorant. So there's two documentaries one on who or uh they're both actually fictional shows they're both really good one called i think dope sick one called painkiller one's on hulu one's on netflix the story is about purdue pharma so purdue pharma is basically uh, i want to i'll tell you a little bit about that and then i want to tell you about the early even before that because that's more interesting to me at the at this point but basically purdue pharma started by three brothers they it was mortimer raymond and arthur sackler uh, they were oh in, gosh. yeah, they are in the, uh, can you be named Mortimer and not be evil? Like that's, I mean, and he's, wow. and he's one of the evil ones. <laughs> and so basically these, these three brothers, I'll talk about their background, uh, in a second, but basically they were in the medical industry forever, uh, since they, they started as doctors and then they worked at psych hospitals where they did lobotomies and they're like, all right, let's create, let's start making these medicines and drugs. And so after 50 years of doing this, they eventually start or buy Purdue Pharma. They buy it for not a lot of money, um, but they it evolves over 40 years to where they create this drug called OxyContin. OxyContin was basically, uh, it's an opioid, and it wasn't popular at the time. It was kind of unknown. They had a drug previously that was similar. They kind of changed it, and they the big change they did was they called it a time-released 
technology, I guess. So, uh, and they, through a lot of just shady practices, it seems like they bribed the FDA. They hired lots of ex-FDA people after they approved the drug and they promised them all this stuff. They got the FDA to approve Oxycontin. And the big thing was that they called it time release. And they said that it was believed that, and that, that word believed is important. It's the first time the FDA ever said that. It's believed that less than 1% of people who takes Oxycontin will ever get addicted. So what they do is they go and hire literally 2,000 salespeople who go to all of these hospitals, these doctors, these clinics, and they say, hey, look, we have this new drug. It's for a moderate pain. It's, you can use to uh, prescribe Vicodin only if someone had surgery and had major pain or if they were dying from cancer. We have this new drug. Very few people get addicted to it and it has a time-release capsule, which means that it's really hard to get addicted to. So you could give this to people if they just have like a, a sore back or if they have headaches. Like It's not that big of a deal. And they train these salespeople and they're very aggressive about training. They hold contests where you can win a trip to Bermuda if you sell a certain amount of drugs. You could do all these types of things where they would give like watches. They would throw parties with hot girls. Like they did all this stuff, but it was for medicine, particularly an opioid, which is incredibly controversial, in my opinion, very unethical. And so they make Oxycontin popular to the point where the company is privately owned. It's owned by two families, uh, each Mortimer and Raymond's family. Uh, I believe Raymond's son, Richard, become Richard Sackler, becomes CEO. And they grow this company to be doing like $30 billion a year in revenue. And they're also famous because in order to help their reputation, they donate billions or they hundreds of millions, maybe billions that it added up to to art museums. And so the Met in New York, they have a Sackler wing, like the, the Louvre in Paris, oh, wow. they have a Sackler wing. They, these guys never went to Harvard, but there's like a, the Harvard School or the Harvard Museum that's for the Sacklers. There's the Columbia, there's the NYU, like they've donated so much of their money to arts. And it's basically what they call it a reputation laundering. So they try to like get like into high society, even though they're selling this drug. Turns out two years ago, I think, the government finally cracked down on them, made them go bankrupt. And I'm not sure where they are now, but they're very private. So that's the story of Purdue Pharma. The The book Empire Pains. Really oh, wait, so sorry. The, the end was the government cracks down on them and it goes bankrupt. So the government did what? Because isn't Oxy still like everywhere? Well, so what's I, I'm, I don't know much about these types of drugs, but there's Oxycontin. That's like the brand name. And then there's Oxycodone. And I think that's the generic drug. And then there's Hydrocodone. And then there's there's all these forms of opioids. I think you could still get Oxycontin. But basically, at first, the government made them pay a $10 million settlement. And then people spent five years trying to track them down and like find like one thing that they did that broke the law because it was very weird because they weren't actually breaking the law. Or if they were, it was very hard to find which law they were breaking because the FDA kind of colluded and allowed them to get away with a lot of stuff. So technically, they kind of weren't breaking the law. They got hauled up in front of Congress. And what the government eventually does is they're like, oh, you lied to Congress because you said you didn't know it was addicting. But we found this email from four years ago where you did say you knew it was addicting. And so that's actually what they got charged with, sort of like how Al Capone got charged with uh, tax evasion, not killing people. It was sort of one of those things. Gotcha. And that led to a domino effect where eventually they had to pay something like an $8 billion settlement. The Sackler family had to give up control of the company and they were no longer allowed to be involved in uh, this industry. And so that's kind of where we are today where Purdue Pharma, uh, it still exists, but not as it did before. But we'll see if there's any actually long-lasting change with all that. But it, it's, a, it's a really fun story, like in the sense of it's thrilling, uh, in that they were just horribly unethical. They did a lot of crazy shit. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, this basically killed hundreds of thousands of people. Right, like just through addiction. It killed hundreds of thousands. Right? It killed hundreds of thousands of people directly in that hundreds of thousands of people just taking that medicine were killed. But then what it led to is what we experienced in San Francisco and all these other places. You take Oxy and then you're like, I love this. I need more of it. Now I need something cheaper and something more accessible, heroin, and then which leads to fentanyl. Right. And so it creates this huge opioid crisis where Purdue was like, hey, we didn't do that. We just prescribed Oxycontin. These guys are dying from heroin. When everyone's like, man, it's such a clear, like there's such a, a clear transition here. Like you guys are definitely responsible. So that's why it's like a thrilling story. At Harvard, there's still this this building is still called the Sackler, whatever, the Sackler Museum or whatever it's called, uh, still up, which is kind of crazy that they haven't sort of canceled the, the name off the building. So here's where things get interesting. And this is what I want to talk about. So I mentioned there was three brothers. Only two brothers owned Purdue. So the eldest brother, his name was Arthur. He died in, I think, uh, the late 80s or mid 80s. 
And basically, he was the eldest brother, and he got them all into the industry. When he died, his estate sold his portion of Purdue to the other brothers. And the other brothers are the ones who Purdue eventually created Oxycontin. And so Arthur's heirs are like, look, we had nothing to do with this. Uh, it's the same name, but like we had nothing to do with this. And Arthur was the one who liked to donate a lot of money to museums. So same last name, but their argument is that it's different people. But Arthur was incredibly shady. And I want to tell you his background. This is where things get really interesting. So check this out. So this guy, Arthur Sackler, he was the eldest brother. So he was a patriarch. He kind of, and he brought in his two brothers into the business. And he was originally a doctor. But his first hit was as he was a doctor, he started an advertising agency, a medical advertising agency. And he studied copywriting. That was his thing. He learned about copywriting through a traditional agency where he would work at a traditional agency at nights and weekends in order to help pay the bills. And he was like, copywriting is awesome. I got to do this for Valium or this other drug, this other drug. And so all these huge pharmaceutical companies at the time, this was in the 50s, 60s, and eventually 70s, like, um, what, what's that big one? Roche, R-O-C-H-E. I believe that they yeah. were the inventors of Valium. And they start saying, hey, Arthur, you're a little agency. We hear you have good ideas. What are your ideas? He's like, well, we have to hire a sales force. Then we're going to create these ads. We're not allowed to advertise towards consumers, but we can advertise towards doctors. And they popularize Valium by making it like an everyday drug. Like, oh, if you're a little stressed, and you know, just like you would take an Advil, just pop a V, pop a V, you'll be <laughs> calm. And they have like housewives vacuuming in pearls, like with a Valium, uh, like logo. Or he also popularizes right. tranquilizers, so he makes them popular. So he builds up this uh, agency, but in secrecy, he does two things that are interesting. One, he finds his comp- uh, competition is another medical pharmaceutical ad agency, and he buys half of it. And so what they what he does is he eventually corners the market for pharmaceutical uh, advertising and he owns the other one secretly and he'll say stuff like, look, you don't want to work with us? Fine. Go to our competitors. They sound like they're a good fit for you. And they collude together on how to like market together and like which techniques are working. The second thing that he does is he creates this thing called the Medical Tribune. It's a bi-monthly newsletter for doctors. So he's in the newsletter industry. He, it's a free thing. Uh, a free newsletter that is eventually read by 300, 400, 500,000 doctors. And he, what he does is no one knows at the time that he owns it. But he starts using his original company, MacArthur, for advertising, buys ads in the Medical Tribune. And through this, he, it creates two huge companies. And that is how he creates his original fortune. And I found... I went and like dug through the... Um, Newspapers.com. That's one of my favorite sources. You can find old newspaper clippings. I found some of the numbers. So check this out. So Mc, McAdams, sorry, I called it MacArthur. It's called McAdams. When he died, the company was doing $170 million a year in revenue. And that was in 1985, I believe. Uh, it had 170 employees. And then his other company, Medical Tribune, it was, it was not sold for a significant amount of money. It actually sold uh, for around $70 million to Axel Springer, who also bought Morning Brew. Uh, our friend Austin's company. So I've been giving him a hard time about this. Um, Austin Sackler. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Austin Sackler. And so uh, annual revenues for Medical Tribune range between 50 to $80 million in the last few years of existence. This was in the late 80s and adjusted for today. That's around 150 to $200 million a year. He also, Arthur, while he was doing this, he was buying, he owned like three New York City townhomes. He was making seven, sometimes eight-figure dollar donations uh, to art, uh, to uh, museums, and he had an art collection valued at sixty million dollars. When he died, I think he was seventy-five. That was in the late eighties. He was worth around one hundred and fifty million dollars, which today is around four hundred million dollars. Uh, maybe five or six years after that, that's when Oxy was created. But besides the fact that these guys are, you know, do illegal, horrible, unethical things, what's crazy is this guy owned two companies that were doing close to each of them over a hundred million dollars a year, and it was medical advertising and a medical newsletter for doctors. And he owned... It was him and his wife owned the whole thing. So like super fascinating background story uh, about how this guy originally got wealthy. Wow. Prolific. Prolific family uh, for sure. That's crazy. That's a crazy story. It's crazy. So a lot of the stuff like uh, that the Purdue family or the Sackler family is about, it's about Oxycontin. And I thought that was interesting. 
But what I thought was really interesting was just like, I was like, well, just from an entrepreneur's perspective, how to get started. And so I did all this research, where I dug right. deep. And then I went into like a, I, I use this thing, it's like a historical money calculator. And so it helps you calculate how much money is worth today. I then went, looked at real estate prices from the 70s and 80s in New York City. And I found out how much he was paying for homes. And I found, and I basically like reverse engineered like the income from this medical newsletter because I was just curious how it works. I think, by the way, that still works today. Uh, and, uh, there was another company. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a company that used to give out free TVs to doctors. TV and these TVs had like skeletons For on them, office. and you yeah. could like you could like move the skeleton around in order to like show like, all right, your colon is actually right here, and we'll zoom in on that. But on the TV was ads for drugs, and this company eventually got in trouble. Interestingly enough, for fraud, it turns out they were lying about a lot of stuff. But this pharmaceutical industry is so interesting to me because it's something that we're supposed to trust. Turns out it's a lot of it's bullshit and it's just as shady as someone would say that this MyFreeCams website is or even worse. And it's really fascinating how this whole industry works. But medical newsletters, super fascinating. A legit company, Axel Springer, which is a $5 billion German newspaper company, bought it. And so I actually think these still work today. And if you go on TV... Is it still running, by the way, or no? No, they shut it down. They, uh, I believe they shut it down. And like everything involving Sacklers, like people don't want to have anything to do with it. But if, you, um, if you're on... Do you ever watch cable TV? Yeah, sometimes. Dude, sure. it's only car commercials and drug commercials. That's like all it is. It's like <laughs> Cialis and like it's... So anyway, this pharmaceutical advertising industry, it's, I, I would never enter it, but it's really fascinating how it's done. And it's incredibly lucrative. It created this fortune and I think it could still create more. Well, I put this out there before, which was that um, we get asked a bunch about, uh, hey, I'm doing a newsletter. Can you help? Can you invest? Can you advise? Whatever. And we basically, I think both of us say no to pretty much all of them. The one that I think is interesting still, or two, the two areas that I am interested is who's doing an amazing job of this in real estate and who's doing an amazing job of this for the newsletter for doctors. Those are the two that I really care about. And I'm like, I really want to find whoever's doing a great job of that and, uh, you know, invest or advise or partner with them to like help make that bigger. Cause I think those spaces are amazing spaces. If you have the right person going like doing it the right way, there's a lot of nuance to it, but, um, yeah, I still think this idea would just work again. And they, and they sell for <laughs> huge multiples. So aging media did this for nursing homes. So somewhat senior living, yeah, yeah somewhat related. I, I don't remember the multiple, but I heard rumors. It was like 15 times profit, which is really great. Uh, and so these businesses are still super lucrative. And I think what Arthur did, um, whether you think that's good or bad, the way that he did it, I think is bad inherently. I don't think it's bad, but the way that he did it is, I think it's still incredibly lucrative. So well, let me tell you, let me tell you another story about a, a smart weirdo. All right. So here's, here's this is, a smart this weirdo. This is the episode, smart, smart weirdos slash maybe bad people. <laughs> um. This guy, I don't think, is considered bad, but uh, he's my Billy of the Week. A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars. Okay, so we've had, we have some, actually, multiple contenders. This is a Billy of the Week uh, runoff, actually. A, 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 maybe this is a, actually a, a campaign. But this guy is, is um, doing something interesting. So his name's Steve Davis. Uh, you probably don't know who that is, just because it's a fairly generic name. But um, and if you Google his name, it's a it's a professional snooker player. What is that pool? <laughs> yeah, a it's snooker like pool. Some kind of like pool. If you if you had like you know the wrong color balls or something. Um, so this guy is Elon Musk's long trusted like right hand man. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. It is a podcast that we want you to check out. It's called D2C Pod. It's hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas. It is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. And this is a podcast about all things direct-to-consumer, D2C. It's e-commerce stores. It's how you optimize your brand. And they're talking with founders, marketers, and the platform creators about all kinds of things that you need to know for D2C. You know, website conversion, paid ads, Facebook ads, consumer trends, email marketing, if you want to know the stories behind your favorite brands, this podcast is for you. They did an episode recently about scaling creator growth and influencer incentives. That I thought it's pretty cool. So check it out. Listen to DTC Pod wherever you get your podcasts. So let me tell you about this guy. He um, joined SpaceX back in 2003. So very early on. Um, 
crazy background. He's got a twin master's degree in particle physics and aerospace engineering, right? So, you know, guy's got a dome on him. And <laughs> <Yeah>. he, <laughs> but I think what he was doing, I think he was doing something like completely unrelated, but he was one of the first employees that ended up getting hired by SpaceX. I, I, for some reason, I feel like I remember he wasn't like working in the industry. He was doing something else and then he got hired. And um, the stories about this guy are kind of legendary. So when, when Elon bought Twitter, People were like, who's, gonna, uh, who, who's he going to make CEO? And a lot of people were like, it's going to be Steve Davis before he put the, the lady from NBC in charge, which was sort of a weird pick. It seemed like it was going to be Steve Davis. Why? Because Steve Davis was living and sleeping in the Twitter office with his wife and their newborn child oh that they had God, just dude. birthed like three weeks prior. <laughs> what a brown noser. <laughs> Intense. So this guy, um, if you go read the stories about him, it's like it's like folklore. So uh, one person said he's been working six hours a day, every single day, seven days a week for years and years. Uh, another person said he's insane. He gets more work done than 11 people working together. Just himself. What? <laughs> one time, um, one time Elon Musk, uh, they were doing something with the production of, uh, of a part in, in uh, one of the parts of the, of the rocket, I guess. And this was a $120,000 part. And Elon's like, we need to get this down to $5,000. And nobody was, everyone's like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, of course. I wish, I wish it was free too, but like, that's just not how things work. <laughs> yeah. He's like, $5,000. <laughs> and he just left the room, right? And Steve Davis takes that as a personal challenge. He's just working for months and months to try to figure out how can we do this for 5K instead of 120K. He ends up getting it done for $3,900. He figures out a way to do it. He emails Elon so excited. Elon, we did it after months. We figured out how to lower the price of this part down to only only less than $4,000. You said five. We got it down to less than four. Elon just replies, okay, period. It doesn't matter. Steve Davis is undeterred from this. And he he just keeps going. He's become... Uh, now he's the CEO of Boring Company. So Elon's like, uh, you know, third company or whatever that he that he created after... Um, all that right, you got space. And, and, and that company's legit, they right? Boring company. They actually are making stuff, or is it just like well, a t-shirt company? No, they are doing things, but there's a lot of criticisms like uh cool, like how um how, you know, how how's that tunnel going? Yeah, right? Like where's what's going on? You you dug this tunnel, but like it's only compatible with Teslas and they have to put like rollerblades on before they go through it. It's like, I don't know, this seems kind of shitty, right? <laughs> Dude, I want my um, cities you know, so- to look like Swiss cheese, just holes all over the place. Like what's, <laughs> what's going on? You're just selling flamethrowers. And so, <laughs> you know, on one hand, they have improved the speed of, of boring, of uh, actually digging the tunnels. Uh, but the reason I th- found this guy interesting, so not only is he like, uh, Elon's right-hand man that you haven't heard of that, you know, I find that interesting. Uh, not only is he probably worth maybe a billion dollars at this point, like based on you know, SpaceX stock has appreciated like crazy since 2003, but um, this guy's totally weird. So he just is, he's got a great sense of humor that he takes to business. Okay. So uh, he, uh, basically Elon sends him, Elon trusts him, right? He's like, Hey, we need somebody on the ground in, uh, you know, he's got like this like city in Texas and like at one point he sent him to D.C. for a uh, lot like, you know, they needed to be near uh, D.C. because a lot of their contracts are government contracts. So he's like, send Steve out to D.C. from California. And Steve's living there. He's doing his job. But he's like, God, you know what I miss? I miss just having great frozen yogurt. He's like, they don't have that D.C. He's like, he's like all I got is this crap. I miss the California frozen yogurt. You know what? So. As a side job from his very important job at SpaceX, he opens up a Froyo shop called Mr. Yogato. And he not just opens it up, he goes and he works there after work for fun. What? And so he goes and he works there and he starts to make it fun for himself. He creates just a bunch of ridiculous policies. So if you go to Mr. Yogato, if you can stump him with a Seinfeld question, your Froyo's free. If you come in dressed as uh, Bjorn Borg or whatever the like tennis player you can, or not, I don't know if he's a tennis player, maybe he's a, there's a musician or something. You get 25% off. If you let him stamp Mr. Yogato on your forehead, 10% off. And so he created this long list of rules, essentially on the secret menu um, for what he could do. And then when he had to leave, he had to move away. Uh, you know, SpaceX needed him in some other place. He's like, ah, oh, shit, I'm not going to be able to go work in my yogurt shop after work. Uh, okay. Um, hey, 
come, whoever comes to Mr. Yogato today, one of you is going to get the shop for a dollar. <laughs> he just gave the shop to some guy for a dollar at the end. It's like, here's the keys. The only rules. Um, I want to keep, uh, you know, being able to come here and eat half off. And, um, you know, uh, and also you got to keep some of the, 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 the rules alive. Like if you can recite a speech from Braveheart in a Scottish accent, 20% off. <laughs> and so he, so he does this yogurt chop. He also Dude, opened the, up at one point. The the headline, if you Google Mr. Yogato, is it's a, from an article in the Washingtonian. It says Twitter's next CEO might be the Mr. Yogato dude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he goes, bro. Like the rules are amazing. You just you should go look at the rules of this. Rule number eight: Anyone wearing a kickball uniform and has played hard, evidenced by dirt on their knees, will automatically receive ten percent off their yogurt. Anybody who can reenact the 47 second Michael Jackson thriller dance, 20% off. If you perform a shorter choreographed dance, you can get 10% off. <laughs> this is actually genius, so by the way. Order a yoga for 30 consecutive days and we'll name a flavor after you. I mean, this guy's awesome. Yeah. So he's having a good time. So then he opens up a bar called Thomas Foolery, short name Tom Foolery. And same thing. Uh, instead, uh, you know, every bar has a happy hour. He created the angry hour. Where if you shout your order of the drink to the bartender angrily, you get a discount on your drink. Um, you know, they served like cookies and ice cream at this thing. And he's like, this is a place where we're going to take you back to being a kid, but with alcohol. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I love this guy. This guy is uh, hilarious and weird in all the best ways. And I just went down this rabbit hole because his, his, this guy kind of fascinates me. There's nothing about this guy really on the Internet. Nobody does interviews with him. Um People discovered this Mr. Yogato thing, but there's not much out there about him. How'd you find the there's bar thing? There's only a few times. Uh, that's like, you know, part, you know, just digging in. Like, what are some of the other crazy things that this guy does? When they announced um, the Boring Company, it was a press conference with Elon and some guy. The some guy is Steve Davis sitting next to him during the, the talk. And what they did was to make their point. This is, I, I kind of love this marketing. To make their point that, like, why did you create the Boring Company? And he was like, well... In like whatever, a hundred years, we haven't gotten any faster at drilling. Like we're still the same speed we were like 50, 75 years ago at digging these tunnels. Nobody's done anything innovative. And to do when they and they did the press conference, it's them talking, but around them is a circular track. And on that track, they put a little like a, a snail or a slug or something. And it was just walking around the track super slowly to represent how slow this industry is and how slow other people are drilling and at the end of the two hour seminar it was still only halfway around the thing oh my god and they're like you know that's the industry today and we're going to change it i love these little nuggets these little sort of like marketing gimmicks that make a point in the sort of simplest most uh memeable viral way possible uh you know i gotta give elon credit and uh, this guy steve steve credit for how they do that it, where where did he work before how do you get a job with elon uh well just early on you know if you're twin master's degree in particle physics and aerospace engineering. There's not that many places to go work. You work at NASA or you work, you know, uh, Boeing or you go work here. Right. So he, he got a job there early on and just like started grinding like crazy. And that's why, like, even now just sort of grinds like crazy sleeping in the office with the, with his newborn child. That was just like his wife just, just gave birth. I have a rule. We have a rule in our house in the, in the par house where I will only sleep under another man's roof for one night. And if it's my father, if it's my father-in-law's house, he gets two nights. I don't like sleeping <laughs> in another man's home. It's the most emasculating thing on earth. I can't imagine <laughs> moving my wife and newborn baby into the Twitter office. Can you to my boss's house? <laughs> yeah, my boss's house. <laughs> like Elon's like, hey, how's our wife doing? And like <laughs> you're like a billionaire. Yeah, too. you're and, not like an intern. <laughs> yeah, you're you're like I, I I don't even like I don't stay at another man's house. I don't even like staying at my father's law's house, let alone staying at the Twitter HQ. Can you imagine with a newborn with a newborn or, or a baby? I can't imagine that. I, that's not for me, dog. What, what's your phrase? Cornrows and face tattoos. Yeah. It's not for me, but I'm glad freaks like you exist. Yes. I'm glad it exists. Sleeping at the office with my wife and baby. You got, you can have that. I'm happy you exist, but, <laughs> but that ain't for me. Is there any part of you that is envious of this guy? Because I don't find any amount of envy other than I appreciate his sense of humor. Oh, yeah. I think this guy is great. I think, uh, do I want to be him? No. That's what I mean. Do I think that this guy's probably, you know, this guy's interesting and seems like he... 
uh, thinks differently and I think I could learn or be inspired by it. Sure. For sure. For example, I went deep. Uh, so one, so one of the things he did while he was working at SpaceX and they moved him to DC, in addition to the yogurt shop, he went to George Mason and got like a PhD and his thesis. I found his thesis paper and I read it, which was very hard. I don't want to go into too much detail on it. <laughs> How but did you find this? It, I, when I'm Googling him, I can't, you can barely find anything. It's the same, like four photos. Just a lot of grit and determination. <laughs> you're the um, Steve Davis. Of, you're the Steve Davis of, of researching deep Steve Davis. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I apply it to, to searching, researching other great men yeah. more so than, yeah. than being one myself. You slept on your couch um, for literally hours to find this. <laughs> it was literally. I ignored six my newborn child also. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just going to read you two things. So first, the paper. The reason I really liked it is it's about. The debasement of the U.S. currency. I think he wrote this in um, what year was this? It's basically like very, it's very early. It's like kind of like early, early Bitcoin days. So let me just search Steve Davis debasement. Um, so yeah, 2010, and his paper is called "The Trend Towards the Debasement of the American Currency." And he talks What's in debasement about, like, a lot mean? of. Does that mean it's at the bottom? Does that mean devaluing? That, okay. Devaluing. So. So, you know, he, t he talks about the history of like, you know, basically, uh, you know, I don't have my notes in front of me now, but like, uh, one of the things he talks about is, you know, um, did you take notes on this $1 thesis just for yourself? Yeah. Um, so I was like, you know, he's like $1 or whatever, you know, one or sorry, one ounce of gold was worth this many dollars before. And now that same ounce of gold requires whatever, like, you know, a hundred X more dollars. Like basically like. We used to be pegged to gold. We got off the gold standard and look at how look at how much the dollar is devalued relative to gold in that time. And he's basically like there's a trend towards the debasement of um of currency and he talks about like people think this is like a you know over time slow slow thing but actually like 95% of the debasement has just happened in the last like 40 50 years or something like that. Uh, like it has accelerated quickly and this is not just like, uh, yeah, this is not just like, you know, a, a, a slow thing. Um, all right, here we go. So 98.3% has occurred from 19, 1792 to the present time. But even if you shorten that, like still 90% of it happened in a very short window of time. And he talks about why he talks about how he talks about like what that, why that's such a big problem. And this is basically like a, uh, a cryptocurrency, like, like Precursor, he's not talking yeah. about Bitcoin in it, but this is like, this is crypto is a solution to this problem, right? Like Bitcoin, what if you had a currency that could not be debased? Exactly, uh, which is like the meme, but it's it's also like uh, the truth. <laughs> you know, it, it's like these things are cliche because they're there's an element of truth in them. Those are, that's why they stick around. In his acknowledgments in this paper, so he says, "Oh, I want to I want to thank this professor, this professor. I want to thank this person." And at the end, he's like, I want to thank my mom and dad. He's like, finally, thanks to the unknown chef that makes great brownies at the small enterprise hall cafeteria. Hopefully, they will one day become a topping at Mr. Yogato or its successor, Little Yohai. <laughs> like, this Dude, this guy, guy's like, been plotting. This, this guy's just hilarious, man. This guy is just so funny to me. And uh, yeah, there's like a 100-page paper if you want to go read. The most guy's, impressive uh, part works. is that you read this guy's thesis paper and you got as far as to the acknowledgments at the end. No, no, acknowledgments at the beginning, my, my friend. That's like the uh, it's the thank you at the beginning of a book. Uh, so I didn't read the whole thing. It's a 162-page thesis. I read like 40 pages maybe. Um, That's so and he's impressive. like step-by-step, step-by-step where the debasement started and how it happened. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is fascinating. Like I never knew any of this. Is that what you have to do to become a, to get your PhD is to write a 140-page like original work on something? That's amazing. I didn't think, I didn't know that theses were that long. Not only do we not have a PhD, <laughs> we honestly don't even know what the hell a PhD is yeah. or what it takes to get one. I used <laughs> to tell, tell people I had my one. PhD. I thought it meant poor, hardworking, and driven. Uh, like, <laughs> that was my joke. I, I a play a hating degree. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize that it's, you have to write a 100-plus page like report on this. That's amazing. Like, I'm not that hungry and driven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely not. That sounds really challenging. Uh, By the way, one of the great get to know you questions in the business world that's sort of dorky, but actually is a good one, which is if you had to give an impromptu 45 minute talk on a subject, what would you give it on? 
like for you, it might be like copywriting or newsletters, right? Like something like that. The history of denim. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm not joking. I could do it. <laughs> you want to talk about denim? I got you. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> what would yours be? <laughs> there is no answer that is better than that answer. I, I don't want to continue the podcast. It was so good. <laughs> you see, the things, joking, uh, the things the about <laughs> the things about looms is in the pre-war the of the Jordan. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> shutter looms pre-1944 were particularly special. But <laughs> no, I could talk all about it, and then. Post-war, when Japan was rebuilding Hiroshima, they needed just a ton of machinery. And that's when the shutter looms of America went to Japan. I mean, I could do it. Let's, we... <laughs> that's insane. All right. Your, your turn. What's your topic? Where do we go from here? Um, you want to do post-pilot? I like post-pilot. All right. Let's talk about... Post- I invested in post-pilot. Did you? Yeah, me too. Um, I didn't... You know, I don't like, as you call it, talking your own book too much. I don't like talking about stuff that I'm involved in. But since we're both involved about it... And we're up front. We could talk about it. Well, explain what it is first. Yeah. So let's talk about it. So our connection to Postpilot is with the owner. His name is Drew. But he actually bought the company. And the reason he bought the company was because he owned, um, he used to buy software companies. So he bought designandpublic.com. He bought, he bought karmaloop.com. And then he owned this thing called Auto Anything, which was an auto parts store. And the thing about uh, his whole like playbook is that he would buy these uh, e-com companies and you would be like well your email list stinks so we can like improve that we can do this we can do that and one of the things that he used to do at these companies that worked really well was he would email or mail them like snail mail them like flyers direct mail. and direct mail yeah. pamphlets on the company however it was really hard to do it was like a painstaking process and so he bought this company called Postpilot. he bought it i think he bought it for sixty thousand dollars and what it does is if you're a Ecom brand, you just sign up to Postpilot and they plug in, I think, to Shopify, to WooCommerce, to like a lot of the popular platforms. And they have a done for you service, meaning they'll help you design a pamphlet that you could send to not only your customers, but I think some of your email subscribers and people who haven't already bought from you. And they can send direct mail in a click of a button. And so what he has found, like this whole thesis is like, look, if I have an email list and some of these companies that I bought, their email list was 100,000 people, but 90,000 people wouldn't even open the email. 10,000 would, but how do I get the other 90,000 people to interact with me? Well, let's just send them mail. And so they created a process that you can use someone's address that they've already supplied to you. Or I believe what they do is you can, um, you can uh, use someone's email and phone number and help use other data sources to find out roughly where you live. And they'll send mail to you or that area or people who match your it's like a lookalike audience and they send you mail and they could track if you eventually bought something through their mail. So it's a very ROI positive business, uh, uh, ROI positive marketing channel. And I think he bought this company in 2018. He bought it for 60 grand. It's making well over 60 grand a day now. I think that the last, the, the public information that they said was they crossed 10 million a year in revenue, uh, like 18 months ago, I think. And it's growing like a weed and he sends amazing investor updates uh, where like there'll be like a theme. So for example, him and his co-part or him and his partner sent an update where it was him and his partner dressed like stepbrothers. Uh, and so like he does these really <laughs> funny updates, but the business is growing like a weed. It's growing crazy. And they're um it's really fascinating. Is that what what I'm not an e-com guy. Is that what you what how you Yeah, so we use it. So so we use it and like, you know, if you advertise on Facebook or you advertise on Google and, you know, the, the key metric for any e-commerce brand is your, your return on ad spend uh, when it comes to marketing. So you spend $100 on ads. What's your return? Are you going to get 100 back? Are you going to get $200 back? Are you going to get $50 back? $50 would be a 0.5 return on ad spend. $200 would be a 2.0 uh, return on ad spend. If you can be like getting a 2.0 return on ad spend at scale, you're printing money, right? You're putting in $100, you're getting $200 out every single day. And... um that's uh you know obviously if you could scale that up that's that's extremely extremely lucrative if you use postpilot you can get like a 10x <laughs> return on ad spend it's not the most scalable but it is pretty ridiculous the type of return you get he said a lot of people are getting 5 to 10x um he said most retention campaigns come in between 5 and 10 <laughs> 5 and 10 uh so like he kills it they, I, I don't use it yeah, cuz i don't these are these are like retention, right? So you're, you know, you're trying to get uh, people to, to come back, or you're trying to get a warm lead who hasn't bought from you, but they gave you their their info to try to convert. So it's, you know, obviously different for a completely new customer versus a returning customer versus whatever. But 
the blended uh, ROAS for these is really, really good. So it's very effective, right? You send a postcard, it's got a bunch of, it's got a photos, it's got photos on it, it's got an offer on it. And uh, the cool thing, what they did was they basically took this, they, they weren't the first to do, you know, how do you send mail campaigns? We'll send it for you. What they did was they're treating it like it's Clavio. So most people outside of e-commerce don't even know about Clavio, except for the fact that it just filed to go public. So now a bunch of people are paying attention to this like $10 billion company. That, that raised does. very little money email marketing for um for e-commerce actually it didn't raise the very little it raised 400 million it only burns a net 15 million dollars which is shows how capitally efficient that's it what is. i mean yeah sorry um so every e-com brand basically uses clavio at this point um it is like the the the, the, the dominant player in the space there's some others like send lane or whatever but they basically said we're going to automate this so like we will take all your co- your customer data from shopify and we'll be like cool um when somebody first joins, we'll put make a welcome flow. So automatically, it'll drip out like one hour after they jo- after they sign up for emails, they'll get this. Three days later, they'll get this. And 30 this days later, they'll get this. Clavio. Clavio. Yeah. Yeah. And now what Postpilot did was they took the same thing. They were like, cool, you want to send a one-off blast? You can just go in our editor and do that. You want to create automated flows that are just going to be triggered based on customer behavior? You can do that too. So they basically did for physical mail the same thing that Clavio did for digital mail, which is very, very smart. Um, so yeah. Anyways, I, th- I think they're they're doing really well, and we'll see kind of how how big. I think the only question of this one is just how big does it get? It's a high floor, unknown ceiling. So it's like uh, this business is definitely going to work. Now the question What's is: working? Is it a yeah? Even when we first invested, it was like this clear this was going to work. And it was extent. a the low. Is, it was a low valuation compared to everything. Else. It was not low. It was a reasonable valuation compared to everything else. I think I have about twenty five grand in the company. Yeah, I did something similar. It, was, it wasn't it wasn't like, you know, massive, massive bet. But, um, you know, the question is, is this going to be a $50 million business, $100 million business, a $500 million business or a billion dollar business? I have no idea on that one. Like, we'll see. But um, but it's definitely like it was like a clear this isn't going to be a zero type of investment. So I did this one personally, not out of the fund, because I was like, you know, you don't know the profile of this one. I thought so. I have 25,000 of my own money into the company. I think I, I in my head when I was looking at it, I was like, I think the 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 likely worst case scenario is that this will sell for seventy or eighty million dollars. I was like, I think I could five x, four x my money. I think in a right. unlikely but high uh, outcome scenario, I was like, many, many, many hundreds of millions of dollars this could sell for, uh, and I could for sure one hundred percent ten x this, maybe more. Um, that right. that that was kind of my thinking w- with that investment. And twenty five thousand of my own money is I, I usually do small small checks that that's a smaller check so that's a that's a good one for me right on um i have some other topics but i think we should save them one thing i want to do is i want to start doing episodes that are business ideas only so sometimes basically if you take an episode of my first million you you kind of don't know what you're going to get there's a box you might get a billy of the week story about crazy people who have done crazy things you might get a business breakdown like we did with OnlyFans, just like Here's a business. Here's the numbers. Here's how it's doing. Uh, maybe it's a business like Postpilot, like a business you never heard of that's doing really well. Um, we kind of expose you to the to sort of uh, things that are under the under the radar, or not not on your radar. And then sometimes we do ideas and opportunities, things that we think people could do that could be that could work. And um, Monday, I say I'm proposing this to you. Monday, I think we should do uh, when we record Monday, we should do business ideas only. I think. Uh... I think we're good Monday, and I have a good one. Which are people's favorites. The, the business ideas and opportunities is definitely people's favorites. Um, so we'll do that. But, you know, if we we're going to do that, people got to do something for us, right? Like, I don't know about you, but if I kiss, I like to get kissed back. If I hug, I like to get hugged back. <laughs> and if I provide value, I like to get value Yes back. means yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and all we need from you to give value back, put your wallet away. You know, we don't, it doesn't take money. It's not free, though. It ain't free. It ain't free. (laughs) It sure as hell ain't free. But but your money's no good here. What we do need is for you to take that little finger of yours, open up the podcast app, click subscribe. Go to My First Million, click subscribe. The next thing you're going to do... Where do they do that? Where do they do that? They do that on Spotify? Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever's your comfortable place. I'm not trying to get you to go somewhere you're not comfortable, right? (laughs) Go where you're comfortable, but just make sure you're clicking subscribe. Now go to YouTube. You may, YouTube, go open YouTube. Type in my first million, click subscribe, hit the little bell so you get alerts. We need both of those things from you. We just need it. 
And I don't ask for much, but I ask for this. Don't let me down. And if you want, leave a comment. You could leave a comment. We read all of them. And we even, the funniest ones we send to each other, particularly if they make fun of us. Yeah, the most insulting ones definitely get the most attention. And uh, we can't resist. We're not one of those, we're not those people who are like, nah, I don't read the comments. I don't read the haters. Read all of them. Oh, we read you. <laughs> yeah. We think about you. <laughs> and I recognize Can't usernames. You're, <laughs> you're living in our head. Yes. I've Googled some of these people. I do a re- re- reverse Google image search and find out their LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> and here, I'll actually leave, uh, I'll leave like a hint. So for next Monday, you, you can see on here which company I'm talking about if you scroll down. So I was going to start this with a business that used to exist that was way ahead of its time that I think should exist today. Now is the time. Now, now is, the, is time. the time if you could possibly pull this off. Do you agree with me? Do you see what company I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. I agree with you. I can't wait to talk about that one. And I have one that is um, similar to one of the best businesses in Andrew Wilkinson's portfolio. And I think you could create a new version of that that would work really well. That's the teaser. All right. Manic Monday, we'll call it. I don't know. We just go from ideas <laughs> to ideas. Or where we just look at the comments and just stress out over like blemishes we have on our face. But it's Manic Monday. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you don't have to pay money for this show, but it ain't for free. And, and you, know how, you know how to pay for it. So, all right. That's the pot. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I can be what I want to. I put my all in it like no days off. On the road, let's travel, never looking back. Like-